Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Psychic's Thoughts. Today we will be discussing, once again, video games. I know, I know, stay with me. Um, we're going to be discussing the future of the video game industry. Now, I have numerous podcast episodes um, over the past two and a half years that I've been podcasting. I think I started in December of 2019. Um... And it's mostly the outlet of video games, Twitch and this, and sometimes game clip highlights. You know, I'm a gamer. I've been gaming since I was five, and I find it's a beautiful art form that marries a lot of things that I really love in entertainment and arts culture together. And I think, you know, it's just not only is it a way that I've been able to socialize and find cathartic release, and um, but, but it's another form of storytelling much to the medium of music and film, something I'm directly a part of on the creation aspect as well as being a fan of both mediums. So um, I don't ever see myself developing video games. Um, the only capacity that I could see myself in a, in a paid position as a video game connoisseur and fan is probably... A couple potential uh, video game reporter, industry reporter. Hopefully not just someone who chalks out uh, mediocre, unimaginative, cookie-cutter reviews. Not that kind, more so industry reports and analysts and all that. And or uh, a creative director. Even though I don't know the engineering mechanical side of how to make a video game, and I will never claim I do unless I learn it, um, I understand uh, the the from the perspective of a player. Uh, I know a lot about that, and I and I do study and I do research uh, copious amounts of research on the video game industry as a whole. So I'm not just some guy who plays video games. You know what I mean? It's more beyond that. So yeah, what else? Uh, the other thing I guess I could see myself in terms of a, a video game uh, industry, I guess would also be a Q&A representative, Q&A, uh, PR rep, um, someone who is a community outreach for a set game. Because if there's one thing I've noticed that's lacking, surprisingly, with the tools we have nowadays, is from devs and publishers to the community, a clear, transparent, and fun way to keep the community engaged and informed. Not just through the game itself, but through the information and news. Let's be honest with ourselves, people. 80% of the marketing machine behind video games, and mind you, video games is one of the more profitable entertainment franchise uh, things, I guess, in the world, right? It surpasses film, books, and music, and television in terms of pure profit margins on an annual basis now. So um, for my business heads out there who don't particularly play too many video games or don't care to or, or just, you know, whatever, that's fine. 
See, I'm more for the artistry of it than just the business, but I understand some people need to be like, well, why should that, that this and the, why should we care? We should care because what video games do sets trends for other things we love and consume as art form, as do other things. When an when a album that changes people's lives come out, it changes the industry. When a movie that changes the way movies are made or changes people's lives come out, it changes the industry. When a video game comes out and changes the way, it changes the industry. In their own respective industry, but some of that cross-pollinates into other industries. From technical to sheer um, implica- implementation of other aspects and elements. So with that in mind, I, I think I could actually be a pretty solid community outreach person given that I work for a game studio or specific game or whatever that I love, that I'm passionate about, that I care about, that I'm given the ample resources, you know, because that's something that's sorely lacking. In early 2000s, when I was little, growing up, the gaming community outreach was phenomenal, right? The hype engine alone, and still to this day, is one of the greatest marketing tools a game dev can utilize. Look at No Man's Sky. Look at Cyberpunk. But also look at Elden Ring. Look at Rocket League. Look at Rainbow Six Siege. You know, they're both sides of the coin. Um, In terms of successful, maybe by profit, but unsuccessful in making a good or beloved game. First impressions matter. I'm a consumer, but I also analyze and I observe and I read into it. And I'm not saying I'm a professional, far from it, so do not take my advice as anything but just a fan of video games who tends to do more research than maybe the average fan. Um, but two weeks. Two weeks is what you have if you're developing a game and dropping it. The first two weeks of its release are the most important for the rest of the game. And it's unfortunate. Hell, albums and films don't have to deal with this in the same regard. If film's first impression, its first showing is important. If it gets great critical reception from the previews, from the showings, and from the opening weekend, and it does well financially, okay, that's great. But if it doesn't, that doesn't mean it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Parasite got good critical reception, but wasn't viewed by many people in the first few weeks of its release. No biggie, it actually grew word of mouth over time, pushing itself into the stratosphere in terms of finance, uh, in terms of box office, but also critical reception. And it won Best Picture, and it deserved it. It was probably the best film it, in my opinion, it was the best film of that year, and I was so happy to see it win. And it was, it's one of the better films of the past decade. So, in my opinion, of course. But, but my point is, it's not, it's not the same. Whereas in video games, video games is very reactionary because a lot of it is based on the internet and based on a younger median age. But that younger median age isn't as young as people may think. Uh, sure, it is more open to kids, right? It's, it, is a, it is a form that is designed for children uh, or was originally intended for children. But in America, and, that, and that's what I'm mostly speaking on, and I can't speak on global things unless I'm pulling specific stats uh, that are global. But I will say that for, um, I believe in 2018, the survey was done that the average age 
of a video game player uh, in America was between the age of 28 and 32. Now, that's not to say that almost every kid above the age of 12 or 13 is also playing a video game. That just means that there are more adults playing it and playing it longer. Right? Uh, and that counts all kinds of systems and games and usage of it other than mobile. Mobile is different. It's so accessible. And it's so universally... Uh, available that that really will fuck up any kind of statistic because you could have eight you know my dad who's you know who's a boomer <laughs> i love him my dad is older and he plays uh solitaire on his ipad uh spider solitaire great game if you've never played it but um and he's been playing spider solitaire ever since i was little he taught me it. i mean i used to play it with him good times he used to play it on his laptop of course on his pc um laptop before uh he got his ipad but now he plays it on his ipad sometimes if he doesn't feel like reading or watching tv you know uh that wouldn't i mean that's gaming but you don't want to throw that in the statistic where you're trying to evaluate gamers who play stuff like i play right not to say he, he, he hasn't played a video game. He has, whether through me or through, through Spider Solitaire itself. But my point is you just don't want to throw that kind of statistic into the pot of when you're trying to decipher who more frequently plays video games that we know as in the more, uh, in the more commercial format at a larger scale. A gamer, right? Somebody who a few hours of the week, if that or more, plays a video game consistently has a dedicated gaming console or your system that could could utilize and play video games right so when you look at that you have adults you have adults um the market is rapidly shifting and those two weeks are pivotal to a video game success because if it has bad reception if it's buggy if it does poorly, it's not. I'm not speaking on if it will sell well. It sells well based on hype, and that's the difference between the video game medium opposed to any other medium. It's so much more powerful. The hype generated of Kendrick's new album about to drop is great, and it's killing me. And I think he'll deliver something great regardless, even if it's not up to the expectations that we may hold him to. I think that would be unfair if we do that. It's been five fucking years. People change in five years. Um, but it might sting if it's not quite the quality of To Pimp a Butterfly or Damn, or if it's not quite your favorite uh, Kendrick album, if you're a Kendrick fan. But it won't sting as much as if you've been waiting for five years for a video game and it comes on launch day and it's buggy. If you're a gamer. I mean, it just depends on what you prioritize your emotions into, I guess. But my point is, unlike any other medium, <clears throat> if something doesn't quite deliver the way you want to, it's disappointing, but you shake it off. And I think that goes back to what I was talking about in my video game industry podcast, my longest one to date, um, about the time and the money that gamers as consumers and as fans of the medium invest into a video game or a franchise. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. It's a shit ton of money. 
It's more money than most other mediums of entertainment. More than film, more than uh, television shows, more than podcasts, more than music, more than books. Now, that's not to say you couldn't spend more on one of those areas other than game, but barrier of entry price point is significantly more expensive to become a gamer. And I mean a consistent gamer who's dedicated to playing a handful of video games. I don't mean the occasional hop on your brother's uh, Xbox two times out of the year. No, I mean you play two times a week, which to me is very small. That's a very small amount. I game daily, right? So, but I understand that that's just not affordable for everyone in terms of time. And that changes. If I'm working a film set that week, I'm, I hardly game, right? So if I'm busy with finals or, or family or something else, of course, you know. But when I have time, I try to cut out a time and it's my, my, you know, alone time, my time to decompress if I'm not doing something else, if I'm not being creative, if I'm not being productive. All that to say, um, those two weeks are pivotal. You drop a game in that first week to second week is is very telling of the game's lifespan. It used to not be quite that. They wouldn't just die off immediately because the market wasn't as flooded with options. But if you have a buggy launch, look at Battlefield 2042. Generated a crap ton of hype. Also coming off the Battlefield name. Right, and that helps when you're coming from a studio or a franchise or an IP that people know. And really, if they care about it, especially, but as long as they know it, if you know it's coming from somebody who's made these games, and you're looking at their record, and you're like, okay, they've made seven games in the past decade, and five of those seven games have been great. Two of them not so great, but not terrible, and two, and one of them is my favorite game of this year. That's going to change your expectations on their next game, especially if that next game is still linked to the very franchise you fell in love with in the first place. That hype machine is a deadly, deadly tool that can be utilized for good and can also be very, very self-destructive. In the case of Battlefield 2042, it was very destructive. It's a great studio of devs behind it, and I don't know what went wrong. I mean, I can surmise, but I haven't played the game enough, and I don't, I'm not a developer, so I can't speak on that, but I can say they didn't listen to their community. They did trends that were opposite to what they should have done, and they went against the grain in their own franchise. Now, you can innovate and adapt and improve the mold and shift and experiment in your own franchise. You should be allowed to do that. Creators of all kinds should be allowed to experiment within their own franchise or brand. If they want to. They should never be forced to create something that they're not comfortable with. Because if the creators themselves don't want to make it, you have a bad product. Right? If it's born from stress and uncertainty, it's not going to be a, a well-rounded product. If it's passion, if it's love, if it's experimentation, it's going to be something unique. But it may still hold some of the same formula or things. That's okay. Gamers don't mind if it feels familiar. 
It's helpful. We don't need to learn new control schemes every time we pick up a game, and I think that's a barrier of entry to learning video games that people who don't game consistently may not understand. That many video games have universal general configurations to the control scheme on the given console you're using. If you're using a game controller for your Xbox or PlayStation, even if they're different buttons and a little different layout, you still relatively the same on the default control settings across the board. If you had to play Call of Duty and Battlefield and Titanfall, for the most part, all the control schemes, especially the primary control schemes such as moving, turning, aiming, shooting, and and maybe maneuvering like jumping or vaulting and crouching are the same place on the controller. The same triggers, the same buttons, even if they're labeled a little differently. The red B button on Xbox is located on the same exact spot as a PlayStation controller, but the PlayStation controller, it's a red circle, and it's called circle, not B. It's the same fucking thing. Right? And their triggers may be labeled differently, maybe a little different in terms of like exactly where it is on the controller. There might be a few more buttons on this controller as opposed to that. But at the end of the day, unless you're using the Xbox adaptive controller or using a PC and, and mouse, uh, or, you know, keyboard and mouse, the controllers are the same. But then again, when you're using keyboard and mouse, there is a similar formula to the games there for PC players. So my point is that there are many barriers of entry and cost is one of them. And that makes the investment on the hype engine very, very real. And if it breaks, it fucks your two-week frame to really push a game into the stratosphere for marketing purposes. Yeah, you can generate as much hype as you want. Once the game's out and people are playing it, if it's buggy, if it's not quite fun, if it's stale, if it's repetitive, if it feels the same, and if it's just not fun to play, at the end of the day, it has to be fun or engaging to play. If it feels like a chore, if it feels monotonous, if it feels lame... People aren't going to play it. And after those two weeks, it's over. They might give it two weeks. And that's what I'm talking about. You have two weeks. Of, and landing that is important. Here's where it can go wrong on the other side, though. Go right, but go wrong. Halo Infinite. Phenomenal hype. Great hype because it's been a while. People are excited. It's one of the most established FPS shooters on the market. Right? It's Halo, for fuck's sake. Um... So they already had hype. They were promising some cool things. They went back to the drawing board. They fixed some things. They released the multiplayer a month before they were going to actually do it. That was a very smart marketing move to just say, hey, here's the game. We're celebrating 20 years of Halo. Now you get to celebrate with us, and it's free. Go play it. It, wasn't, it was a beta, but it wasn't limited. It was the full experience, except it wasn't. I know that's confusing, and you can go and listen to my latest podcast on Halo if you want the details on that. But yeah, it said it was in beta for testing and that none of the features were lost. But even if they didn't have the beta sticker and, and released it on December 8th, it's an intentional release date for the multiplayer. It still would have been lackluster is my point. So the gameplay itself was fun. Everything was great about it. The mechanics, everything is fun to play about it. It's all there. Visually, gameplay-wise, the balances are mostly good. Except there's not enough content. And for a franchise where we know what should be in there, expected things that hurts. And that, that hype and that two-week initial launch window, while it was very strong and it propelled massive downloads and an extremely large fan base, 
They didn't do enough, and they didn't do it quickly enough to keep them. Because if you grab them within the first two weeks and people love it, and it's a game that's specifically live service where online updates are expected to come in seasonal form, you gotta deliver on them. Not only do you have to listen to the community and give them exactly what they want as quickly and as bug-free as possible, but you have to tell them when it's coming, and you have to get them hyped. They won't stay around if they don't know if it's coming and they're not being listened to and it's just not enough to keep them in the first place. That was the critical failure point. Now tomorrow, Halo Season 2 comes out. But as great as that and as exciting as it is, and I'm going to give it a shot because I do love the Halo Infinite game. It's just not enough shit to play. Um, it's uh, It's been six months and we have Season 2 for another six months. That's way too long. Three months should be the goal. So my point is they really botched it. They could have had 200,000 players really locked in. They had a chance to grab new players, making it free to play. They did all the right things to temper and curate the hype perfectly and deliver those that first two-week expectation of being a really flawless game that's fun to play. They did it. And then they fucked up because people, after two weeks, realized, wait a second, now I'm kind of getting bored. There's nothing else to play in this game that's consistently fun. It's not, it's not to say the game isn't good. It's just to say that the game is so good you want more, and the things that are lacking are head-scratchers because they were in Halo games from the launch a decade ago. It's part of that live-service model that can kill a game. Because it doesn't deliver all of its content up front. It slices and dices the content that's established instead of putting all the content you expect and know of and love to keep you until they make new content. There's no reason not for them for them to not have all the game modes and some more maps that we love and then take those six months to have enter a few new game modes that Halo's never seen and a few new weapons Halo's never seen. That would have been wiser than this mixed match. So those two weeks are pivotal. We live in a time where the money is fast. The gamer's attention to the game isn't short. The gamer's attention and desire to find a new game to sink their teeth in is limited. My rule of thumb, and if I was a creative director at a video game studio, I'd say two games. Two full-price $60 games is what most Americans will allow in a year to buy fully. And one of those games, if not two of them, are always going to be their comfort food games, their annual release games, their COD and their Madden, or their Battlefield. Well, Battlefield isn't annual, but they're this and they're that. Usually it's comfort. It's annual or it's so frequent that it's they know what's coming, they know what's expected, and it usually delivers in the ballpark even if it's not perfect. And then maybe have three games that they'd be willing to spend 40 and that's if their friends are playing it. That's a huge component people are lacking the general fucking thought of nowadays. And that's going to cripple a lot of games. So I do hope that as I go further into this podcast, you'll continue to listen because I'm going to talk about the future of the gaming industry. And that's what this is titled... This was just an intro 
um, just to kind of wet your palate on what I think is important to keep in mind as we go forward. Video games is a beautiful art form. It's highly profitable. It's extremely complex. But at the end of the day, the community matters. And there are some things that people may not realize that I personally think could change the gaming industry. So I'd like to discuss further on my thoughts and feelings on what could come in the future and what's already happening for the video game industry. Stick around. Thank you all for sticking around. I appreciate the love and support. My short film will be coming out soon, shortly. <laughs> uh, I'm currently working on finishing my album Dragon, which should be coming out later this year. And I appreciate all the love and support across the board, whether it's via just this podcast, my music, my film, my Twitch streams, or anything else, all things related, Psychic. I appreciate the love and support. Follow me at Psychic34, no caps altogether. So, the future of the video game industry. Now, I'm no Psychic, no. Uh, I think what's really interesting when we think about it is I'm not really worried about the technology. Technology will change, improve, innovate, and sometimes fuck up. Right, I'm not going to be saying, oh, this weird contraption. Yeah, okay, VR is a reality now. I have one. It's great. It's super fun. It's not perfect. And there's going to be some great strides and improvements. Right? There may be a new kind of console or device, right? The Wii and the Kinect and that whole motion era of consoles in 2007 to 2010 kind of took the gaming industry by storm and kind of snuck up out of nowhere to many people. Right? So there's always room for new innovations, right? The Steam Deck, the Nintendo Switch, portable consoles that play more powerful than base consoles from 2013, portable now, that can slide your backpack and give you a good time. Cloud streaming in video games, playing it on your phone but be able to ping off a server at Microsoft, right? Accessibility. These things are going to be coming into fruition as more cellular and Wi-Fi and technological innovations of bandwidth improve, as well as the hardware to boast, right? So I don't doubt that these things will get better. Cordless VR headsets will have better frame rate, better stability, more of a game's market, more maneuverability, and hopefully better batteries. That's really the biggest hindrance to the Oculus Quest 2. It's actually a phenomenal battery for how much game time you can get out of it, but it does degrade over time. So, you know, it's okay. It's manageable. It's quite it's quite unique how much power and how much play you get out of that for the cost, for the accessibility to own a VR that's perfectly capable of playing specialized VR games, full VR games with friends, online, in party, offline, by yourself, with no cords attached, no super PC powering it, on a wireless charging. It's very, very accessible and extremely fun. I get people's woes of it being tied to meta and all that. I understand that. I'm not a big fan of it, but, you know, it's still fucking fun and I'm a gamer. So, what the hell? Gotta be adventurous in some areas, right? So, um, I don't doubt that these technological improvements and new things will come down the line and, and could shake up the industry, as well as from the development side. New gaming engines, new lighting mechanics, new ways to deliver more efficiently built games. 
to allow creators to explore and expand and have better performance and stability. Hey, listen, if someone in the next few years develops a software that can automatically quality assurance a game by scanning all of it and doing rapid simulations, if it if that doesn't already exist, I feel like it must, but maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I have no fucking idea. But an affordable and actually effective way of identifying bugs, marking them, and then the dev- devs can decide if they want to automate the process to squash them or if they need to look in it and personally do it so it doesn't fuck up a balance for something else. If that's not an invention, I have no idea how you would design that, but I think that could solve a lot of problems and help time. The quality assurance of going back the bug fixes, there still will be time dedicated to that. But if you have a process that automatically scans, let's say just in a hypothetical imaginary sci-fi world, 80 to 90% of it accurately and can give you executable tasks on either managing them, balancing them, or eliminating them at that accuracy, that, that would expedite the process significantly and also be better than just a human playing and combing through. While still, you still want the humans to play and make sure because maybe the system doesn't catch everything, but that would help reduce their work time you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's like selecting a bunch of photos and videos you want to delete on your phone. You could do that. It's pretty efficient. It usually works, and it works well, except it's not always, and sometimes you want to unselect or go through it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that, but it still expedites the process with pretty good accuracy. It has systems in place where if you fuck up by accident, you can fix it. Something like that. That would be cool. That would be a game-changing innovation that the consumers would have no idea about. I don't even know if that exists. I now want to go look that up. I I will. I'll go look that up later. See if that's actually a thing. And if it is, why it wasn't implemented in certain games. (laughs) Right? So there are other tools and innovations from a technological standpoint. And as film improves with virtual films and mocap and all these other things, and as CGI efficiency and computer processing becomes more powerful and more efficient, all these things will just improve as we go on. That's great. But let's talk about the other improvement that is vastly needed and quickly. An improvement that isn't actually an improvement, but more so a reestablishment of what used to be in the gaming industry. The future of games needs to be community-driven. And I don't mean in terms of its development, and I don't mean in terms of its financing. I don't think a game... I mean, if you need it and want to, you can have a crowdsource-funded game. That's fine. But I'm just saying, like, I don't think we need, like... I'm not saying, oh, EA and Ubisoft and all these other companies need to crowdfund and... No, 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 no. But what I do mean is they need to prioritize their fucking community. They really do. Especially if we're focusing on online games and live service games you have to accommodate the community at all costs the gaming industry in the early 2000s and late 90s was accommodating to the community in the sense that it understood that it needed people to play the games it wasn't a booming operation at the time it was exploding in popularity especially through the early to mid 2000s but but no no it wasn't as profitable and as lucrative as it is now 
it wasn't as easy to it's like printing money if you're good at it if you're epic games or ea you're printing money <laughs> you know um it was tricky because of the stigma because of the technical and financial barriers to get into gaming and it's not that these things still don't exist. There's still stigma towards gaming. There is a huge technological, intellectual, and financial barrier of entry. And I don't mean you have to be the smartest person on earth to play a game. But depending on the game, depending on the franchise, you have to have the the intellect to learn the mechanics. And I don't just mean how to pick up and press the buttons. That's one thing. And to get comfortable with that. Eventually it will become muscle memory. I mean the specifics of the game. The rules established. The world and the atmosphere and the effects of what you do in that world. Right? These things matter. And I I, I just... I find it that so many game devs are becoming detached. Not the devs. Maybe uh, the publishers and the business side of it is making it more detached than it's ever been from the artistry and the community behind video games. Right? Um, it, it's, it's lost. The novelty of fun has been artificialized and injected in games where it doesn't need to be because maybe the game could have been fun in its own right. Uh, forced progression systems, online services, cosmetics, color schemes, reward and loot progress, all these things, to some extent are perfectly fine, depending on the category. Borderlands and Division are fine with this. They're looter shooters. They're designed for that to some extent. Um... Right? The color coding of rare items have become a universal thing in the past five years, and it's interesting. When you're playing a game that has items to pick up, usually the color coding scheme goes as such. Gray is usually uncommon or common. Green is a little better, more common, just okay. Blue, light blue is rare. Purple is epic. And gold or yellow orange hue is legendary. That's usually the rule of thumb, and if you haven't noticed that, Pay attention. The five big game studios are utilizing this color scheme for your loot in your games. Doesn't matter what kind of loot. It could be an... It could be... I, I mean, Diablo's a little... Diablo... I think Diablo has neared that same color scheme. Maybe a little different. Diablo 3. My point is that um, a lot of games have been doing this. Fortnite. Right? Call of Duty. Even Elden Ring. Division... The list goes on and on for any kind of game that allows loot and items and things that you earn or you pick up. And that's okay in its pure function across the board to universally translate the message that this item, just by observing the light beam color from a distance so you know if you want to go pick it up or not, if it's worth it, right? The visual translation of information is key to a video game's success and the user experience Okay, this item is purple. I ought to go take a gander at that. Now, if you're early level or you're trying to just pick up whatever you can, gray, green, it doesn't fucking matter. You'll just pick up whatever, right? But when you're later in a game or you have good gear, you don't need to worry about 
that. And it's randomly generated, right, usually. So, um, so that, that's a good icon. The problem with it means it's also a tool that could be monetized, inflated, or utilized to mimic the idea of progress or fun when in reality the progress isn't there. And here's wherein lies the difference between uh, what I believe to be usually a good game as opposed to an okay or average game or bad game. A good to great game has one core philosophy. doesn't matter what it is. Whatever happens within the game, it doesn't matter what genre, but the core philosophy is from the first moment you pick up and play it, even if it's in the franchise and it's an iteration, uh, an, an entry into the franchise you've already played, every time you pick up the game, it offers a challenge of any kind. And by virtue of playing, you learn and you overcome any obstacle or challenge and hopefully you have fun while doing it. That is the simplest core mechanic that I think every video game developer should keep in mind when they're developing their game. I don't care if it's Mario. I don't care if it's MLB The Show. I don't care if it's Elden Ring. I don't care if it's Rainbow Six Siege. And the reason why I say all those games is they perfected that example. In Mario and Super Mario Bros., whichever variation you want to think about, there is a challenge to clear the world stage at this rate or to jump over or to overcome this obstacle. Literally, a fucking obstacle like a block or a Goomba or a bullet bill. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But you're trying to overcome an obstacle and it takes timing, it takes precision, it takes learning the game's mechanics and it takes a lot of trial and error and possibly wanting to kill somebody. But you do it, you accomplish it, accomplish it you learn from that experience and you take that knowledge and you remember it muscle and intellectual memory to follow into the next stage to overcome the next obstacle or at least to ease your progress to make it easier you're naturally building foundational blocks right rainbow six siege you have to learn a lot of mechanics especially if you join now and it's a multiplayer game so it's a little different um, not that Mario isn't, but it's a competitive multiplayer game. So the variables aren't set or pre or fixed per se. They are very, very, they fluctuate. But within the confines of the mechanics of the game, no one's going to just start flying and magically zapping you from around a wall unless they're hacking. Um, that doesn't count. You know, you learn the guns, you learn the recoil patterns, you learn what sights, you learn what operators do what, and you learn what you prefer to play with, and you learn the maps. There's a lot to learn in that game, and the more you play, the more you learn. But the very simple objectives are laid out in front of you. Kill all the enemies on the opposing team. Don't get killed. Very simple. And or do the objective if you don't, if you can't kill them or, you know, those, those are your two options to winning a round and therefore winning multiple rounds to win a match. That's the goal. It's very simple. Just like in Mario, the goal is very simple. Get through the stage. The specifics on how to, oh, you want to get this coin. Oh, you want to get 100% it. You want to complete it. You want to break your time. Those are different variables on how you could perfect it. But the simple goal to complete the objective is still intact. Right? And the means of doing so is in your control. And you learn by fucking up a lot. (laughs) 
in both of those games. You will die a shit ton in Rainbow Six, but that's okay. Because hopefully you have fun, but also because you're learning every time you die. Oh, I didn't know you could punch a hole in that wall. Oh, I didn't know anybody could hide in that spot. Oh, I had no idea that operator had that gun in that sight or that ability. Trial and error, you're learning through your mistakes. Rocket League is that way too, for those who don't know. Play Rocket League. It's a very fun game. It's free to play, it's accessible, and it's cross-play. I'll get into that in the next segment. But um, but Rocket League is follows that same principle. It's soccer. The very simple goal is to score and win. Not very not very difficult, right? From a mental capacity to understand that objective, right? Here's the thing about it. It's not fucking easy. You're playing either even if you're against bots, but especially if you're against other people, which is usually the case on a multiplayer game such as Rocket League, it's hard because they're trying to do the same thing. And they have this, maybe not the same car, but they have the same abilities. You can jump, you can boost, you can drive, you hit the ball into the goal, or you block the ball, and you can destroy enemies. You know, you can blow them up. Right? But anybody can pick it up and play and have fun and score and maybe win. But the challenge is getting better because as you get better, you get paired with people who are better and you start to learn. Oh, I like using the fixed camera locked on the ball or I don't. Oh, I've learned to double jump. I've learned to barrel roll. You learn timing in that game is the key. You get more comfortable with it to where it's not muscle memory but it's almost so you get so fluid and so used to it but that doesn't mean that every game isn't is different every game is different within the confines there's variables other players may know a trick you've never heard of or seen or they may just be playing better or and this is when it gets real fun when they're when the opponent team is clearly communicating with each other you may not know it but you can tell they're setting up passes and hitting shots and doing these impossible tricks and angles very simple objective but the toolbox and the sand pit allows you to play around and experiment and improve and get better is all intact this is the most fundamental key design in any video game you play it's the point. And I think that's why video games would be great learning tools. Now, Minecraft's a little different. Minecraft, and there are other games much like it, where the objective isn't as clearly stated. It's more free-flow, learn. But at the end of the day, if you're playing survival mode in Minecraft, it's a very simple uh, objective. Don't die. Survive by any means necessary. And when you learn the mechanics of the game, you'll learn how to do so. So even then, there can still be set objectives. Even if it's more free-flow, those objectives... You know, if you're in creative world of Minecraft, the objective could be set by you, which is great. If you want to build the Empire State Building, you go ahead and you do it. And best of luck to you, right? Objectives, clear defined objectives or the tools and allowings to do so. And then not only that, but allowing the players to have equal footing to accomplish it while having enough variety and variables at play to keep the experience unique per game, per session basis. That is key. Absolutely key. I mean, look at Call of Duty. Fine, and it's multiplayer suite for its objective. But Warzone? 
clearly it has a good set out objective. And it is executable. But not as fair, even playing field. It's not necessarily about getting better. That only lends a little bit to it. It's not necessarily about playing it more. That only lends a little bit to it. So there's a balancing act. All the other games I stated, if you play more, if you learn it, you will get better and you will perform better. It's how it's designed. There's literally no way you can't do that. Call of Duty is fractured in its design. Warzone, specifically, is fractured in its design of that, which is why people get frustrated and don't play it for as long as you may think they do. The fundamentals are fine. Battle Royale, stay alive, be the last one standing. Very easy objective. That's a good starting point. Here's the problem. Not the loot, not the variables of guns, and not the variables of other players. There are other games out there that offer more challenging situations than Warzone itself. The problem is there is nothing in your power at a certain point in the gameplay mechanic that you can overcome by you learning or playing smarter or better. Right? Maybe quicker, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. That playing faster is not inherently a good game design mechanic unless it's like literally about sprinting, like a Sonic game. But playing faster can be a mechanic. If you move faster in Titanfall, it could be a benefit, but it shouldn't be a core principle. Because if it is, that handicaps people who literally can't do that. It's like a spelling bee. It's unfair to people with dyslexia. It just is. It's not not to say they can't do it. They very well could, and they could overcome that challenge, and good on them. You just kind of put them in a fucking bad predicament. So anybody from any age and any kind of experience who is not quick enough, who is not experienced enough at Call of Duty or at Warzone, or who has a literal physical or mental handicap that prevents them from playing as fast or just doesn't know the game very well or isn't as comfortable or plays other games and isn't going to benefit from playing a lot because they're not going to learn enough to overcome the objectives. Now, if you have a good team who does know that, might vary, but my point is if I solo queued in Call of Duty, and I have, and I've played plenty of Warzone, and I'm not bad at it, I'm plenty good, I'm competent, I don't have a lot of fun playing it because I don't feel like I'm overcoming that many challenges. Yeah, sometimes there's a rush winning a firefight, especially if it's drawn out or if it's really intricate. And those are beautiful moments, but they're not the core philosophy if you really take a deep dive at Warzone. It's reaction-based. If someone, if I have a better gun and someone has a weaker gun, it really doesn't matter. It gives me a slight edge. If I know the map or I know the layout or I know that they're coming, that might give me a slight edge and might have me win. But it's not really a guaranteed... And I'm not saying these things have to be guaranteed results, otherwise that makes it fixed. But it's unbalanced because they can run up on me faster, move around a little bit, and kill me with something much weaker, with much less experience of the map, just by moving quickly. Even if I land my shots and have a more powerful weapon. Now some people are like, well that's just how caught is, you have to be quick. I get that. I'm very good at Titanfall 2, which is four times faster than Call of Duty Warzone could ever dream of being. 
but it's balance. It's not just about being fast. It is, it is, it's absolutely about landing your shots and having a good weapon to do so. You could be running and gunning in Titanfall, and it could look cool, and you might be able to land a few shots. But if you're going too fast, you're missing your shots. And if you miss your shots, it doesn't matter if you have a more powerful gun. The person who's landing their shots will win. So when we're talking about ballistics in an FPS game, that kind of matters. That's why Rainbow Six is so beloved but hated. <laughs> beloved by people who want a more rooted, traditional, realistic style. Hated by people who are used to thinking that just moving quickly and reacting faster is virtue to winning. It's not. If you play the game longer, if you know the game and mechanics better, and if you play smarter, you should be rewarded. Call of Duty doesn't reward that. And that's my problem. It's always been my problem. It doesn't reward that. It doesn't matter how many hours I spend. It doesn't matter how well I know the loadouts. It doesn't matter how... Even if I'm getting quick. I'm really good at Modern Warfare 2019 multiplayer. Even then, I can still get beat by someone who's not remotely as good. Who hasn't spent nearly as much time. Whereas in Rainbow, if I'm playing it daily and I'm feeling sharp. If I'm playing against someone who doesn't have as much experience. Doesn't know the maps and doesn't know the game like I do. Eight times out of ten, I'll win. Of course, they might land the occasional better headshot. They might outsmart me in that encounter. And that's what I love about that game. You could still outsmart someone who may know more or be better. It, that's a variable. But usually I'd win that altercation. It rewards players for playing, and it rewards them to keep playing. That is a key core fundamental to gaming. Have an objective. Make it a, make it obtainable to overcome reward them in the sense that they have overcome it and learned from it and can improve just from the natural design of the gameplay and then maybe give them a cool item or cosmetic something to show off in a multiplayer setting or a cool sword in a single player game sure to make their ventures a little easier or to flex on their buddies and you got a game and sometimes that flex isn't anything but uh stats or just being better at the game. So when you're playing with your friends, you could show that off. That is a core fundamental thing in games. And it will stay forever to good game developers. And I hope that the future of video games will maintain that simple thread. And they can build any kind of game off of that singular design philosophy. But as long as you have that, you have a game. Now don't burden the game with a bunch of filler shit that takes away from the clean gameplay loop that allows the objective the the wall the challenge the thing that is in your way and the balanced natural way of learning playing and overcoming said objective it's, it's uh, overcoming said obstacle to reach the objective it's that it's just that So hopefully games in the future will continue that. Hopefully the community will be more transparent and game devs will understand those first two weeks are critical, especially for online service games, to continue their success and their ventures. To make a polished game that is fun to play, that does deliver on the promises and the expectations set by the behemoth of behemoth not bohemoth i was thinking bohemian rap behemoth <laughs> set by hype and then another key key component 
as we venture into online and venture into socialization in a new era, you have to make it fun to play with friends. Stick around for more. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're all doing well. The future of video games. It's a daunting thing to think about. Brief recap, I discussed the beauty and evolution and importance of video games in terms of the artistry and as in terms of technology as well as the marketplace. I've discussed the importance of identifying and understanding the two-week uh, hype in general and then the two weeks for a game when it is released. I have also discussed um, uh, general community outreach and engagement and how important that is to the to the game, and I'll get into that more so. And then I talked about the critical game philosophy that I find to be the most important and key to great games regardless of where they are, what they are, what they do, and what's involved in them. That if you, you put the player in a position where they must overcome, where they must succeed in an objective, and where they have an obstacle they must overcome, and you give them the tools and you make sure that the challenges are balanced to the, in respect to the game itself, right? That it's doable, but challenging and then once you have that and they can overcome and succeed in that objective the reward of doing that teaches excites and keeps players coming and then everything else can be added in and now as we move into this online era a vital vital component is multiplayer, is online, is social engagement and interaction. It is vital to the lifeblood of the video game industry. If they don't figure it out, there's going to be a lot of issues that come of it. And when I mean multiplayer, I mean the ability to play with friends or against people, but mostly just to play with people. Now, let me make this quick disclaimer. I don't think every game deserves or needs to be multiplayer. I don't think every game uh, needs to be single player. I think if the game developers intend it to be this way with these features, great. Perfectly fine. Um, I'm all for single player games. And I'm all for multiplayer games. But when we have them, or when we have the features that include them, specifically pertaining to multiplayer, we need them to not only work, but we need them to be up to par with the standards that we now have in this industry. So, Most video games you play will have a multiplayer component or feature. In fact, so many single-player games that don't have any way to play with any other person still needs you to be plugged into the internet. Now, I think that's atrocious. I think if there's no way for you to play with other people or to utilize actual internet features, you should not make that person required to have internet connect 
to just play the game. That makes it real difficult for certain people. I get it if it's something where you're trying to load into a multiplayer lobby, you need internet. I get that. If you're playing a game that literally has no function of co-op, multiplayer, PvP, engagement, interaction of any kind, don't have people required to do it. Just don't. Or if you have a game that, say, has a single-player mode and a multiplayer mode like many do, have the single-player mode be able to be played completely unplugged from the internet. If that person want to plug, unplug their Ethernet or disconnect their Wi-Fi, they should be able to play that single-player mode. Do you know why? Because so many people don't always have the access to internet. And they should still be able to play some video games. Even if you travel. I've been to hotels where the internet's so spotty, I would rather just play the single-player mode and enjoy that. Would have really fucking sucked if all the games I had at the time were like, oh, sorry, you still need an online connection even though you're not accessing online. And if you don't have it, you can't play the game at all. It's not one of those things where, oh, it might hinder your performance. No, it just means, oh, sorry, you can't play this. That is bullshit. That's a way for them to, to log you, to track you, but also more so so they could sell you shit in their marketplace. Oh, you want this cosmetic? <laughs> A lot of games do that now, so keep an eye out. Check the box if you're buying physical. Check the details if you're buying digital. It will say online requ uh, connection required. Internet connection is required. Recommended is different. Required is what you're looking at. If it says required, be mindful of that. Purchase wisely. So regardless of that, though, let's say there is a game and... We're not having that issue, right? I'm just pointing that out. But we have a game, and it is single-player, it is multiplayer, all that's fine. Like a Call of Duty. Call of Duty is doing it right, actually, in my opinion. Call of Duty has been very smart in these past few years. I don't think they're perfect games. I think they need to fix their formula and you know, reinvigorate their fan base and do a lot of things to fix the franchise. But I will say... In terms of multiplayer options and accessibility, them and Fortnite and Rocket League, but especially them and Fortnite, are top of the game. Every studio who has the means, and I know these are very wealthy, high budget, so it's a little different depending, but every studio with the means should definitely, definitely invest in multiplayer if they have that as a feature. Call of Duty and Fortnite and a handful of others do this beautiful thing where you can play online in multiplayer regardless of the games and the modes and the maps and all that shit you can play online it runs on a server from the said company so it's not peer-to-peer -peer network which means the person who starts the game is the host and if they have great internet you're gucci if they don't oh you are fucked <laughs> Now, not every game is able to afford server farms and rooms that will be having stable, dedicated servers to ping in different regions. That's okay. Uh, I'm only talking on ones that can have that. Many of them do. Many of them can rent them out or have agreements with bigger companies to allow them to utilize those. It's very common in the industry. So let's say that they're using servers. Let's not worry about peer-to-peer -peer connection because that's not as common anymore. It's few and far between. I remember when For Honor was peer-to-peer -peer connection, the Ubisoft game, great game, by the way. 
and then it went server. Holy God, it improved the game tenfold. It's an online-only game. You're just playing online with people, and it's dueling. It's about precision. It's about landing your blocks, your hits, your timing, your parrying, your movement. Everything is... It's a great game. Super intense. It was on a peer-to-peer connection, which would mean if someone... Randomly selected, mind you. You don't get to choose if you're host. It just randomly... Like, oh, this person's got best internet ping-related region to you, whatever. If if they have an internet spike, the game does too. Maybe not as drastic as they would have it, but it definitely does. And if they leave the game, the infamous host is connected per match, it would boot you from the game. Now, in the evolution of peer-to-peer networking and gaming... They at least remedied, most games at least remedied that with if that happens, it may pause the game, it may buffer, it may lag for a, for a half a second or so, and then it would auto-select the next best connection for hosts so the game keeps going. But there are some games that didn't do that, and there you go, that's your match. <laughs> Mid-game, doesn't matter. If they disconnected, if they lost power, whatever. If they left. So, Yeah. That's not as much of an issue anymore. We see server base, so anybody can drop in, drop out. And it's just stable. It's more stable across the board. There's less latency, there's less issues, and it's more fun. So servers are the way to go, and that's usually what you'll see. And some games will allow you to select what kind of servers you want to be attached to, which is kind of important if you pay attention closely. You know, if you're in Cali, I mean, these servers have incredible range, so it's no big deal, but... Ping is a thing, people, and you want lower ping, usually. Most games metric it, the lower the better, right? That means the less latency, MS, millisecond. So if you have one ping, it takes one millisecond for the data from the server to synchronize with what you are currently seeing and playing. That's super fucking fast. You won't know any better. Hell, 30 milliseconds is hella fast. (laughs) You'd usually be okay. It's when you get in the 100, 150, 200 to 500 range where you're like, okay, this is stuttering. This is becoming an issue. That's a lot of milliseconds very rapidly. We're talking about 30 to 60 to 120 frames per second with the millisecond in mind latency. Plus your personal connection. That's that's a lot of interference that could hinder your gameplay by causing stuttering, lagging, glitching, frame rate drops, and, of course, disconnections. The range of those servers in relative to relative to where you are is also kind of something to consider, because that's the distance in which that thing, that data packet, needs to travel to reach you. These are things that you may know. They may, you may not know them. If you're learning something new, great. I hope you do. But... It may be something you kind of are aware about, especially if you're a gamer. You just never really thought about the mechanics of it. Um, and I, I'm no, I'm no technician. I'm not a professional. I don't know everything about this. So, um, by all means, if you're intrigued to learn more, I, I would encourage you to go do some research on it. It's a very fascinating topic. Um, but yeah, if you're playing a game and you're in Cali, you probably should choose if you have the option to. Now, usually, it just auto selects what's servers closest so you're usually okay but if you want to choose your preferences or you want to choose a server you're pinging to better choose west coast as your primary east coast as your secondary if they have a central central uh america you know like in chicago or something that's fine too and then i mean if you're west coast maybe asia and europe 
and then Australia. Australia almost always has their own server dedication region. Uh, point is, try to f primarily pick the three that are closest to you. If you pick Australia as your main server and you're in California, you're going to notice the difference. Oh, also, if it's a multiplayer game, you'll all of a sudden be in servers with Australians. So for that purpose, it's kind of cool. You're just going to have a hell of a fucking time trying to play the damn game. I've done it by accident before. I was playing on my VR. I was playing, um... Well, it left me now. Uh, I was playing a, a FPS of some sort or some, some game. Maybe it was Echo. I, I think it was Echo VR. Great game. Free to play, too. Um, I was playing Echo VR, and I didn't choose it. It just randomly selected. It was that time of the night for me, which is early afternoon for Australia. And it was a Saturday or something. They were on. I was on. <laughs> Not enough Americans were on, I guess. I happened to be in a full server full of Australians. And it was insanely fun. It was, I mean, it was brutal. The latency was so bad, I almost couldn't play. It was rough. It was very rough. I was able to push through and, and do okay in the game, but my God, I couldn't do it for very long. I was just like, well, fuck. And, but I will say the community engagement, the, the, inter the social interaction was really cool. Because I didn't, it didn't say, oh, your server changed. It just did it. So when I loaded the next game, and I heard everyone talking. I'm like, okay, this guy's got an Australian accent. That's cool. You know, diversity's cool. I'm like, this person does too. This person does too. And I'm and I'm looking and I and I'm at the scoreboard at the end of the game, and I'm hearing them all talk. And I'm like, okay, all of these people are Australian. That's so cool. And you know, different phrases and lingo and behavior. It's just a different social engagement, and it was really entertaining and hilarious. And they understood I was American very quickly. Or not from Australia, I should say. Um, I mean, I told them I'm from America eventually, but they were like, hey, you... But here's how I noticed immediately how I confirmed. Because, you know, maybe by some odd chance you do just happen to be in a lobby with a bunch of Australians in American servers. It's possible. Not very likely, but it's possible. What I noticed is my ping related to the everyone else in the game so much higher i was hitting 130 to 200 fluctuating and they were in you know steadies 30s to 60s which is average and that made me realize oh i am the fish out of water that solidified that i was on an australian server all of a sudden it doesn't always actually shift the amount of people you're playing but or the where they're based but it can so if you want to do it for that social interaction by all means give it a shot it'll just hinder your gameplay experience Anyway, sorry, that was a tangent, but I thought that was kind of interesting to point out. So, server interaction game, right? Let's say you have a single player that you can play offline, online, whatever. Uh, and multiplayer is all there. What Call of Duty and Fortnite and a handful of other games do beautifully is, A, they do allow um, a multitude of privacy settings. So you don't have IP and, and some maybe your gamer tag or your ping or a bunch of things they have privacy settings for those who, who care about that um it gives you the information in the game that you need it gives you your your ping it gives you all the information and data relating to your network connection you may want and you can either just check in the settings and see the live 
every five second update of your status or you could maybe pull up a quick uh, display of it configure settings so it can show your general ping or whatever whatever you choose so those customizable ui experiences will help as well as it allows multiplayer on multiple phases because multiplayer is a complex thing not just from an engineering standpoint i have no fucking idea how complicated it is uh specifically i just understand it is quite complex and i, I can't tell you the the specifics but i i could only imagine how goddamn difficult it would be to figure out how to make a game multiplayer and make it work how to make a game itself work is hard enough then to put a bunch of other people in and have the experience be reliant on a singular connection to a server or multiple connections to one server is also crucial um anyway so i'm not saying how to do it and i'm not saying too many in the specifics of the engineering or mechanical sides because i don't fully understand it but i do appreciate the the and understand the difficulties that may come with it but as a semi knowledgeable extremely large or heavily inspired consumer of video games i will say call of duty does it right in the sense that you know there's multiplayer on local i think i think there still is i actually haven't tried it but i believe there is so you can play split screen maybe not i i could be wrong but let's just say i'm right okay you can play split screen so if you're on xbox you're on playstation whatever or pc for that matter and you and your buddy comes over they grab a controller they sit down they can play with you great you can play a handful of modes zombies pve maybe the campaign and then if the game's really advanced and smart they allow you or friend to play with you split screen while you're both in a multiplayer online lobby Uh, feels like a relic of the past almost something that was very popular in 2009 to 2015 and i assume it's still there split screen isn't as common as it used to be so that feature alone is actually being removed from many games because they say it takes so much time to optimize and make that work and i'm like well on certain games i understand you don't need it but man there are some that really deserve it or should always keep it um so that's a function of multiplayer that local ability it's still important to have especially if you have if, if you have children especially if you're a couple especially if you have friends over daily especially if you're a kid and you don't you're not allowed to be online as much that's an important accommodation if you have siblings to have in games especially for younger ages um but I think it should all it should always be in games that can that need or have already established the use of it and that can actually afford to to have that feature. So there's split screen. That is one function of multiplayer. But usually when people say multiplayer, they now think of online. And that also varies as we become more connected. And as we understand, the technology is getting better, but there's still companies at play who want to protect their social circles. Xbox and PlayStation, 
for the longest time, were never allowed to communicate and engage with each other in games. Some that that's actually a very interesting thought process that my parents never actually understood. Uh, they do now, but they didn't when I was younger. You know, with Xbox Live and PlayStation Network and the the birth of online console networks being built in as services to the game. I know you have to pay for them, whereas, you know, people who have PCs say, "Oh, we don't have to pay for our subscriptions. We we just," and that's true. You just you have your internet bill, but you have your internet bill regardless. So that's you know, there is a benefit to that. Um, but my point is. You can host parties, you can add friends, you can message on and offline, you can show achievements, you can see what games you're playing, and you can link up and play video games together. If your friend has that same console and is paying the subscription to be online, and that game has an online feature. So let's talk about it like as if it's 2015 or 14. Or 13? 13. 2013. We're playing Black Ops 2. And my buddy has an Xbox 360. I happen to have an Xbox 360. I have an Xbox Live account. He happens to have an Xbox Live account. We both have Black Ops 2. We're both fans of it. And we both want to play multiplayer together. That's no problem. Unless, of course, his internet crashes or he loses power. That's no problem. Right? That is in our control. We can party up. We can join each other. We can play games. And we can have a great time. God, what a great game. Herein lies the issue. Anybody on PlayStation 3? Out the window. Couldn't play with them. Didn't even know they were playing the damn game. I'm kidding. I did. But I couldn't play with them. Couldn't talk to them. Couldn't play with them. There's no means of doing so, especially in 2013. Um, Nowadays, it's a little different. Especially for bigger franchises that can afford to do this. And I encourage the industry, and I will keep fighting for this to be a reality. Crossplay. Good God is crossplay important and cross gen. There's a lot of different terminology that can get confusing, and I have explained this in my specific podcast episode about crossplay. So that's a whole lot of shit about that. That if you want to go check that out, you can. But I'll kind of try to keep it as brief as psychic would in this kind of thing. Um, there's multiple phases of crossplay. Okay, crossplay is the ability that between platform depending on the game, between platform, you can play with another platform, okay? Now, that comes down to company, that comes down to the licensing, that comes down to the doability from a actual, tangible place. Like, can they, do they actually have the means to, to pull that off? It's not an easy task to do, but it's becoming easier and it's becoming more widely acceptable. So with that in mind... What are some games that are fully cross-play? And by fully cross-play, I mean that, that that's discussing games that are multiplayer online that can play between the big three, PlayStation, Xbox, and uh, PC. Nintendo Switch does not count because Nintendo Switch is using different online services and is just is a different, more isolated market within itself it's its own thing you can play online games on nintendo with other people with nintendo and there are a handful of games that are ported and that you can play that are on other systems but it's not in the same conversation so not counting nintendo and not counting mobile even though there are exceptions i think there will be cross-play games if there aren't already for nintendo and there are for some mobile games but 
for the most part, it's not the case. So we're talking the big three. PC, Xbox, PlayStation, which other than Nintendo, that makes up majority of the market. Of course, mobile does too, but we're talking about fully-fledged video games that aren't mobile. Um, those are the big three, right? So a fully cross-play game it means that game on multiplayer mode, whatever that mode may be, it could be a multiplayer shooter or arena, it could be co-op survival in a horror setting, whatever it is, it allows you to play with your friends regardless of what platform they're on. So that's pretty cool. Um, that's important to accessibility. I mentioned earlier people are going to play games if they could play with their friends far faster and far longer than if they couldn't. If that game is already saying they have the option to play with your friends, right? I'll get into some examples in a minute, but Call of Duty and Fortnite are fully cross-play. Meaning, you could play on your PlayStation, I could play on my Xbox, and my buddy could play on my on his PC, or I could play on my PC, and we're all playing together in the same lobby and having a, a good old time and no problems. Then there are games that are partial cross-play. It's annoying because a lot of blogs or devs or updated patch notes won't always first of all it's buried in its slew of information so you have to really dig to figure out if it is crossplay which if you want to play with a handful of your friends and they're on different platforms that's something you have to very very much consider um but beyond that it's uh partial crossplay means it's crossplay between a set handful of devices uh, partial crossplay could entail that it's crossplay between Xbox and PlayStation. Now that we have this new gen that's come out in 2020, it could mean it's only crossplay between the newer hardware, PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X. That's partial crossplay. Things to consider. Right? Or it could be between PC and Xbox. But it doesn't mean it's between all of them seamlessly. And it doesn't matter what generation. The best kinds of games to me, in terms of crossplay regards, not gameplay, just crossplay, are the games that are like, fuck it. Anywhere, any game, any console, anytime. And if they're free, oh, the holy grail. And then, if they're fun, to land all of that is damn near impossible, mind you. There is only a handful of games that are like that. Rocket League being one of them. Good for them. Um, there are only a handful of games that can do that, uh, that have done that. And we'll strive to keep improving that. There are only a handful of games that allow you to play on Xbox One, PlayStation 4, Xbox Series X, PlayStation 5, and PC seamlessly. And that are fun. Hell, I'd be willing to pay for a game like that. And then if they're free, like Rocket League. Like Warzone. Warzone's that way too. Warzone allows all that and it's free. And it's fun for a little bit. <laughs> There are other crossplay games that are fully crossplay. Chivalry 2 is one of them. Um, Minecraft is crossplay between Xbox and PC. Um, the list goes on. There's a lot. There's a lot. But you don't see many implemented in the games that most people would buy. But they're cropping up more and more. And I only hope that that is 
a default. I would love for that to just be the way it is. I, I would hate for people to be restricted. We, If you're giving us the option, if you're allowing the market to already allow it, then just let's introduce it fully. If it's in COD and Fortnite, two of the biggest video game franchises, some of the biggest video game franchises on Earth, it it's here to stay it's not going anywhere so you might as well start integrating it in every other kind of franchise that would see it be a fit of course the issue comes into play and this is the bigger hindrance to why game devs won't put it in here and this drives me fucking nuts every time they will say oh um if it's a competitive player versus player multiplayer game specifically a shooter such as rainbow six siege or insurgency sandstorm both great games highly recommend them i do have episodes on those so if you want to go check them out please do but anyway both great competitive shooter games very tricky and the thought is and the reason why there isn't fully integrated crossplay or crossplay at all is for this very simple notion the pc people would smoke the consoles people and here is my rebuttal to that shut the fuck up and just make it <laughs> I mean, I get it if it's hard and if you don't have the resources, that's one thing. But if, you're, if your excuse, if your reason to not do it is something as stupid as that, then just learn to shut the fuck up. Because here's my thought. Once again, I don't know the mechanics, so I could be way off. So bear with me here. I'm only saying shut the fuck up because I'm frustrated. Two things. First off, I have seen console players smoke PC players in PvP shooter games. Maybe not quite as competitive as Rainbow and or Insurgency. But pretty competitive. Splitgate. Um, Apex. Apex Legends does a great job at staying crossplay. Fortnite. Fortnite can be very competitive. And Warzone. These are very great examples of extremely competitive scenarios. Not quite as competitive as Rainbow Six in some regards, but still very competitive in its own nature. Rocket League 2. And I've seen people on. That's different. Most people play controller for Rocket League. But my point is. Um, I've seen people absolutely annihilate people in first-person and third-person shooters that are on a controller to somebody on PC. I have. Maybe it's not common, and maybe especially on Rainbow or Insurgency, you will get smoked more. You just It is easier to aim and shoot on a mouse. I understand that. You have more flexibility in movement. Halo Infinite. Halo Infinite's also cross-play. Not PlayStation, but Xbox and PC. And that's great. That's a great addition. So smart of them to do that. Um, but yeah. I play better... Halo, I play Halo Infinite better on Xbox controller than I do on my PC. And trust me, I've played on both extensively. But I play Insurgency Sandstorm better on my PC. I haven't given enough time for Rainbow Six on my PC yet. Uh, I haven't bothered. It's not even cross-progression, which I'll get into in a second. Um, but anyway, so that's the uh, that's the reasoning. Oh, people on PC, they have better equipment, they can react faster, they have a larger field of view. And those are legitimate concerns to the balance of the, of the game. I understand that. Here's how you remedy that. You make it a very, very obvious toggle. That's all. Check mark, a box, a toggle switch, whatever. You make it optional. It's not required, but it's fully integrated and it's there. You switch that on. Bam, you can play with anybody, anywhere. Switch it off, bam, you play with people specific to your console. Call of Duty does that. So if you're getting smoked by people on PC and you're like, okay, this isn't fucking fun anymore, 
<laughs> you know, you're on a controller, you turn that off, you load into a game, and now you're only playing with people on your, on your device. You make it a toggle switch. And you make it very obvious and apparent that crossplay is enabled, and these are the ramifications that can come with it in terms of you're going to get your ass beat. Because you might. You have to give that note. You have to make the crossplay on very obvious that it's on in the menu. And you have to show the players multiple times repeatedly in a menu setting or in some pop-up tip crossplay is enabled. So you will be, A, you may experience network um, issues that wouldn't normally come of it because there's so many other different types of devices connected. And or also you may experience players who are utilizing different control schemes that may edge you out. I don't know how they would phrase that in a more condensed and understanding way, but essentially turn this on at your own risk sort of thing. It's not that big of a deal. If you don't like it, if you're getting your ass kicked, turn it off. If you're not, which probably isn't as significant of a margin as people may think, then you keep it on. You can turn it off when you're playing alone, solo queuing, and just trying to win. And the time where that one buddy who has that other console turns it on, there you go. And hell, an even more advanced setting. Allow cross-play between certain things. Because usually it's only when PCs entered into the mix. So, Which is a shame because it limits people who have PCs to their friends. And the barrier of entry of that is huge. To buy and have a PC and to rebuild your game library on a PC is a massive investment. So people playing console who may want to be on PC may not be able to. So at least allow the PC players to play with consoles. Give us that option. And allow the console players to have it in return. Make it a toggle. And maybe as an advanced setting, you can also toggle it. Where if you really don't want to fuck around with PC people, but your buddy's on PlayStation, you're on Xbox, then you can switch that. So partial cross-platform. And has a little description of what that would entail. Per game. That system would help games tremendously. Any kind of game with a multiplayer setting. Um, I wish Elden Ring had it. I wish Elden Ring had a more fully fleshed co-op. I've discussed that before, but their co-op's pretty good. It's very fun, and I wish crossplay was enabled for that. I wish Rainbow had crossplay. I wish most games had crossplay. So my buddies who have console, when I have it on PC and I bought it on PC, they don't have to buy a fucking PC, or I don't have to repurchase it on Xbox, or wait and hope that crossplay comes. It's a very important feature, but the bigger underlying theme is allow players to play with the people they want to play with. Give them the tools and give them the choices to do so. Give us a toggle switch. Give us the server selection. Give us ways to play with our friends, by ourselves, against other people, where and when we see fit, if you're integrating multiplayer. That is pivotal to the lifeblood of video games, to the community standpoint. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're doing well. This isn't really about the future of video games, huh? It's more about the great things about video games and things improve, as it usually is when I discuss industry stuff. But I really do want these things to be reminded to people as the future of the games push on, technologically and elsewhere. I think that's really important.
I, I, I just, you know. It's what's needed. The core philosophy of gaming, the understanding on how to market and generate proper hype. The allowing players to play with people when and where they can. We're breaking down our barriers, our walls. We have to help with the barrier of entry. And that's where we go into the market. The finances. From a consumer standpoint. Let's talk about consumer-friendly practices that will help the longevity of the video game industry or specific games and franchises as a whole. Now, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel pretty mixed. Streaming is a very, very interesting mechanic. On one hand, it allows multiple people for a much lower rate at a consistent price point, pay monthly or annually or whatever, semi-annually, to consume a larger content than they ever could before, but loses on the fact that they could own or per-buy or fully have something with an individual price tag. Look at Netflix, right? You can pay 15 or 10 or however many dollars it is now. I think it's 10. 10 for the base, 15 for the more premium version of Netflix. Allows you a whole slew of Netflix originals and things that they have licensed and things come and things go. And that's kind of what you have to understand. Certain shows get canceled, as they all do. Certain movies leave the service and go elsewhere. Certain movies come in. Certain movies come back. 8 Mile has been through the ringer, no pun intended, and has joined Netflix and left Netflix two or three times. Departed as well. Very weird, but who knows why. Those are some of the risks to it. You don't get to keep it. Now, in theory, you don't get to keep it if you digitally rent it, but if you digitally buy it, you get to keep it for as long as the company is still around. And usually, when you're digitally purchasing a movie, that company is not going fucking anywhere. You'll die before you lose that. So, early when the digital stuff was going on, oh, don't buy your digital game. Oh, don't buy your digital. I was like, okay. Apple, iTunes, Universal, Warner Bros., Disney, MGM, or Amazon. All these things, the IP, the licensing, the rights, all of that that allow us to keep them. Oh, we'll be dead before they even risk going under. Don't stress it. If you buy, uh, 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 I don't know. If you buy Avengers Endgame, uh, not on DVD, just digitally. Uh, I don't know why you would. But if you do, uh, I'm only saying that because if you're going to buy a movie, try to buy it physical. That's my personal preference. Um... Buy, I'll get into that in a second real quick as a tangent. But anyway, if you buy it digitally, <laughs> let's say you buy it through iTunes. And you buy Avengers Endgame. And it's uh, 10 15 bucks on iTunes. 4K, UHD, all the bonus features, all that on iTunes. Great. Great movie. Worth owning. Here's the thing. First off, Apple isn't going anywhere. So you... Even if they change iTunes, they're not going to change the rights to the movies you have. The only thing that could do that is, well, I guess if Apple went under, it isn't happening anytime soon. But also Disney. If Disney went under, which also isn't happening anytime soon. But, or of course, if Disney decided to say, no, you're no longer that, that uh, 
But usually when a company's like, no, that's no longer going to be on there, that only affects people streaming it or renting it. it. If you buy it, you own it. You own the digital license to say you can utilize this product, the product key. And if you own it physically, you literally fucking own it physically. Here's the thing. In movies, when I buy a movie, I am 99% of the time buying it physical. Unless there's somehow a much better deal. I I like my streaming service subscriptions. It allows us, my family to watch TV shows and movies that we just can't afford to buy. Or don't want to risk buying because we may not like it. <laughs> right? That's fine. It's like an advanced rental system. I buy the things I know I will forever want. I have a huge movie collection. And now what I try to do is, A, I try to buy on the format. I have Blu-ray, 4K, UHD, whatever I've got going at the time for the physical. And I will pay 5 to $6 extra instead of paying uh, 12 to 15 I'll pay the 20 to $22 to get that premium disc, whether UK, 4K, UHD, UK, 4K, UHD, Blu-ray, plus this, plus that. I will almost always make sure it comes with the plus digital. <laughs> I win. <laughs> that is the best way you could buy a movie. You own it physically, so if anything ever happens, you can still play it. And then again, if you break the fucking disc, or if you don't, if you're traveling, you don't have the movie on you, if you don't feel like popping it in the DVD player, guess what? If you're smart enough, you redeem those digital codes. Fun fact to anybody who isn't aware, there's an app called Movies Anywhere. And it's a cool app. It allows on most retails and most services, from iTunes to Amazon to Disney to Universal, MGM, almost every movie except movie studio, oddly enough, except Lionsgate, I believe. I think that's the one that's missing that's allowed to be utilized in Movies Anywhere. You can redeem... There used to be ultraviolet and all these weird systems that failed, but they all kind of collapsed and folded into movies anywhere. I'll get into that. This is a tangent, but it, it relays back to video games. I'll get to that in a second. Um, if you download the Movies Anywhere app, you make an account for free, no problem. It holds all your movies. Every digital movie you bought through iTunes, it could put on that app. You could watch it in the resolution you bought it for. If you bought it in 4K, guess what? You could stream it in 4K. You could download it to your device so you don't have to be based on internet. So if you're traveling on a plane or whatever. Um, they added a thing called Screen Pass. So certain movies are eligible for Screen Pass. So a person with a Movies Anywhere account can temporarily watch that movie with you in app. Great for long-distance couples like myself. Um bunch of other features and it comes with all the bonus content all the features you would get if you pop the dvd in your player and what's great about it is regardless of what movie and what brand you buy except lionsgate you can add it to that movies anywhere if you digitally redeem the code you can digitally redeem the code and you can redeem it straight into the movies anywhere app and you can redeem it straight into itunes and it pulls from your itunes library so universal what is it? Universal, MGM, Amazon, iTunes, Voodoo has their own thing, so maybe not them. Uh, Microsoft. So if you, so it also holds them as well. So if you bought movies through iTunes, not as a DVD, and if you bought movies through the Microsoft thing, not as a DVD, it will also hold it in that app. So you have all your digital movie library in one place. So it's useful for that purpose, but it's also useful for those digital codes you get on the inside of your DVDs. 
Don't throw them away. They take forever to expire. And funny enough, a lot of them, even though they say they expire, they don't. When the Movies Anywhere app came out, I decided and I went through all the movies I knew I still had digital copies to that I didn't already redeem through iTunes. And I did that. I never did that ultraviolet shit. That shit didn't work. I didn't like it. It was buggy. It didn't... I didn't trust it. And I'm glad I never put my codes in there. I would have lost all those movies. I put them in iTunes. It usually says on on the studio's preferred service, ultraviolet, this, that, whatever. And then it says below or iTunes. I'm like, oh, I'll take the or iTunes. Thank you very much. And so all those iTunes movies have now are still there. I can still watch them through iTunes or I can watch them through movies anywhere. And just two days ago, I was thinking, huh, I wonder... And you can also buy movies digitally on I- and movies anywhere. It's just a... It's a really cool tool all around. And I wondered... Because it kind of cropped up out of nowhere. And it's so convenient. It's so useful that I could just scan the code, write in it, boom. It has it. It's there. And I have a digital version of the movie I own at home. Great. And I thought... Who owns this? Because if this company who made this app, as cool as it is, loses its agreements or doesn't have funding to maintain the service, then I have to migrate my library. Now, I still most of them are on iTunes, so I'm okay. Because, like I said, Apple ain't going anywhere. But I like this Movies Anywhere service. I looked it up. It's It was tricky. I looked it up yesterday or two days ago. They're owned by Walt Disney <laughs> Corporation. So Movies Anywhere is a Disney product. <laughs> no fucking idea. There is no telling. I mean, now that I look at it in hindsight, I'm like, okay, maybe a little resemblance to Disney Plus's UI. But for the most part, and honestly, I don't care. When it comes to stuff like that, I want it to be a big company that isn't going to go under and that isn't going to discontinue an app or a service that easily. Because I don't want my library to go away. <laughs> you know, if it was started out of some basement with no... with private investment funding, I'd probably still use it, but I'd be very, very worried that at any point, those license agreements can expire, and oh, there you go, can't use those retailers anymore, you gotta go back to the other digital systems you had in place, so, I am kind of relieved in that regard, check out Movies Anywhere, if you uh, collect movies, if you have digital codes you still want to redeem, or if you want a digital library to build, I'm not sponsored by them in any way, Um, I just realized I sound like I am, I'm not, I'm just... I told all my friends about it. I'm like, guys, if you have digital movies, that's where you... You gotta put them there. (laughs) You gotta put them there. Because if you have, you know, digital codes, there's no reason not to have them. Because now I can watch a movie that I don't... That I don't have streaming. That's the other thing. There's a handful of movies that aren't streaming services that I have on my digital code. And I get to watch them. I did it with It. It wasn't on HBO. It went away. It's crazy. Okay. Listen to this. I was visiting my girlfriend. We wanted to watch It 1 and 2. It, for whatever reason, the movie, It, IT, you know, with Pennywise the Clown, the new ones, 2017 and 2020 or 2019, it it went away. It left HBO, even though it's owned by Warner Bros. I don't know why. It probably went to stars for a a month. It left the day I I arrived to visit my girlfriend and the night we were going to watch that. I didn't bring my DVD version of it. However, I was smart enough over the summer, the prior summer, to put all the digital things I know in my movies anywhere. So I was able to watch it. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't anywhere unless I wanted to rent it, and I was for sure not gonna rent 
a movie I already own for three dollars. You know what I mean? So it's those kinds of practical uses. The streaming digital era is an important thing to take note in. And the reason I went on that whole tangent is because I'm a filmmaker and I collect movies and I love movies. And I thought anybody who owns movies or collects movies should probably know about that because that's not talked about. It's popular. You'll see movies anywhere. Oh, also the Movies Anywhere app is on other devices. That's what's also kind of cool about it. It's not just on your phone and iPad and your Android devices. It's also on Xbox, PlayStation, and PC and all those gaming devices or medium de- media devices. Apple TV. So you can access that library anywhere virtually. Um, it's very useful for that reason. But the bigger thing I'm getting at is streaming. Because you could pay for Disney Plus and have Endgame. You could pay for HBO Max and have it. And for those movies, they're not leaving that service. And that's the benefit of knowing the company fully made it and owns the rights to it. And they're not going to get rid of that because that pulls people to pay for their subscription streaming service anyway. So they're not going to get rid of that. But they could at any point if they wanted to or saw fit or someone was just fucking around and finding out. They could. So if your favorite show or movie is no longer accessible to you, it's infuriating. (laughs) It's not the end of the world. It's a first world problem, I understand. But someone like myself in entertainment, it's infuriating. When it migrates to a service you don't pay for or don't want to. Or when it's just not there all of a sudden. That's that's particularly odd nowadays since it's usually available everywhere. There are plenty of movies out there that you all of a sudden are like, man, I really want to watch this movie. You don't own it. There is no more physical rental stores for that fact unless you got one locally. Kudos to you, lucky son of a bitch, if you do. Um, it's not streaming anywhere. And here's the real kicker. When it's not for rent anywhere to pay per the product, I mean, you can't pay it three bucks on iTunes or Amazon Prime or Vudu or whatever you choose. By the way, Vudu is owned by Walmart. For those of those, for those of you who don't know, so if anyone uses Vudu movies and TV to rent and purchase their their films and television, just know that's owned by Walmart. Uh, and I think Vudu is now with Fandango, so I don't know if Walmart owns that or if someone else came in. I don't know. I don't understand that one, but. Also, Hulu is 60% owned by Disney as well. That's why you see 20th Century Fox in Hulu and all FX and Fox shows in Hulu and not all in Disney Plus because Disney Plus caps it at PG-13. So the rated R shit like Alien and Deadpool and um, Atlanta and Always Sunny in Philadelphia. If you noticed after the acquisition of 20th Century Fox, if you look at Hulu now, the hubs, how it has the FX hub all of a sudden, and ABC network hub. Yeah, that's because Disney owns FX and ABC. And yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible how much they own. It's incredible where Disney came like how humble their beginnings were in the artistry of making films and animation. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent, but streaming is important. And no one thought of video games when this equation was coming to fruition for films and television. I find that to be very interesting. And when you think about it, here's the other kicker. When video games were migrating to be digital, whether bought or streamed, 
Um, people were, of course, against it, as they always are, and that's okay. I think it's good to have a healthy combination of your favorite games you own physically. And if you can access them digitally, great, but if not, oh well. I think that's good to have a balance, your favorite stuff you own physically. And then you may still have a copy or a version or a way to access it digitally for convenience or for keepsake or for backup. That's perfectly acceptable. Um, I think it's a smart way of doing business and just consuming the mediums that we do. Uh, And it's special. Uh, There's something about having that unique box art to that game, that physical disc, the movie, hell, VHS tapes, a book, uh, 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 an album, a vinyl cover. It's, there's something, the tactile sensation of holding and owning the, the art that came with making the cover and the information on the inside. It's a treat. You know? Game box art with the maps and the guides inside and the they used to come with instructions on how to play. That's cool. It's cool to have. Advertisements for the very game you just bought in the box when you pop open the game. Something that's really cool. But the digital thing everyone was freaking out about. Here's the thing, guys. Uh, I don't know if you realize this. If you buy specifically for video games, not for discs. Discs are not for film. You buy a fucking... You buy Black Panther in 4K and you go to a 4K Blu-ray player and you play it, you're going to be able to play it. If it's on 4K, any Blu-ray player, anywhere, on any device, it'll work. If you, if you grab an Halo 5 Guardians on disc and you pop it in a PlayStation, it ain't playing. Um, if you buy Halo 5 and for whatever reason, it does not, Xbox does not register that you have the licensed product code in your account name to activate the gameplay state, it won't load, even if you put the disc in. The disc in physical games from 2012 and on, so for the past decade, the disc itself is the data written onto it, and the product key, that is the license that tells the device you are allowed to utilize this. If that license is scratched, damaged, broken, or if it doesn't read properly, for whatever reason, it ain't fucking playing. It doesn't matter what it is. That doesn't happen with a movie. It could. Disney could make their own DVD player that you exclusively have to put Disney-based DVDs in. It would be a very stupid move to pull. They'd rather just have their own streaming service anyway. That's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. It's just a physical thing. And that is worse. That's horrible. And video games do follow that principle. So, that's just something to note. You can't... um, If you got... um, Let's say... Okay, uh... What's a game that's coming out soon? Sniper Elite 5. Super excited for that. It is going to be cross-play, and it's coming to Game Pass, which I'll get to in a minute. If you got, if you, let's say somehow, someone at Rebellion Entertainment, the devs of the, or Rebellion's, Rebellion Games, I think is what they're called. Anyway, the devs of Sniper Elite 5. Let's say a buddy of yours has the full, the, the game went gold, which means it's a finished game. Um, let's say they send you a, a, a early copy 
if they send you an early copy and you pop it in your said console and your console does not identify the product key because the game isn't officially out yet, it won't mean that you can't play it when that release date rolls around. It just means, um, yeah, you're too early, buddy. You can't play it right now. It'll do that for a physical disc. The same software that it utilizes to identify those product tag keys and understand what you're trying to play is the same for the digital games. It's not the case with Xbox 360 or PlayStation 3. That changed with that generation where the always online. They integrated those things for various reasons. I don't fully understand, but they did. I can't fully confirm that. Uh, I just assume that they utilize the same technology. Uh, I've seen it happen on my own console where it's glitched out and it doesn't realize I own the game for whatever reason. I pop in the disc and it's like this product key isn't. It was a glitch or the disk drive didn't read it properly or whatever. Point being, it's the same exact pop-up that would happen if it thinks you didn't buy the game. You don't have the license to utilize the content because you didn't pay for it. That's a restriction that people don't realize. Um, Also, with games, you can't just pop them in and play. You do have to download them even if you have a disc, and that confuses people. They're like, wait, why? Well, because literal discs can't hold as much data as games need nowadays. Whereas if it's digital, it can hold as as much data as you're willing to put the consumer through, unfortunately. That's why some games that were really big had come in multiple discs and they split it up between content. This is the campaign, this is the multiplayer, this is the whatever. Part one, part two, part three. There was one game that was like four discs. I forget what it was. It was massive. It's because a, ga- a disc for a video game can only hold up to, uh, I believe, 18 gigabytes or maybe 20. So that's not a lot nowadays. Anyway, so streaming is a huge thing, is what I'm getting at. And I was going into the minutiae and going on tangents on kind of the importance of understanding how you own your physical as opposed to your digital products when it pertains to films, television, and video games. Um, Yeah, so... Game Pass, right? Let's talk about that. I mentioned that. And I have an episode on that that's a little dated. I might need to do an updated one to point out what's new and what may... It's kind of different, but uh, Game Pass is a great, great, great consumer-friendly practice that could go wrong. And what I was getting at earlier is the beauty in these is how how useful they are to gamers, especially. More so than even movie streaming services. But how dangerous they are, because that just means that that company is solely in control of if you get to play that game. Um, yeah, I mean, you can still buy it. You can still buy it digitally. You can still buy it. And and they notify you. They remedy that fear of what happens if your favorite game goes away. Well, first off, it's not like Netflix. The most popular games that are played, they give you, first, they give you heads up if that game does happen to leave. But they do pay the devs and the publishers really well. And it does help their game because the barrier of entry has just been reduced tenfold. 
the idea of Game Pass means you pay monthly, and if you're smart, you pay, you bundle it with your Xbox Live. I didn't for a while because I was using the free stuff, but when Game Pass came out, it was ten bucks. Still is the basic tiers, um, and I was paying for Xbox Gold annually. I did the math. It's the same price, but if I pay for Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, $15 a month, so the same price as paying for them separately, I get some added on benefits, so it's actually a better deal at the end of the day. I think it's like 3 bucks more, actually, when it all pans out for whatever reason. Anyway, um, so, um, I mean annually. I don't mean monthly. It was 3 bucks. 3 bucks more. It was like $183 instead of 180 or something. I don't remember exactly, but it was kind of weird. I'm like, that's odd. But my point is, um, I get Xbox Live, so the ability to play online at all on my console. I get um, I get the Game Pass stuff. That alone, that's the deal. And then here are the benefits. You know, you get your perks and stuff with Game Pass. And these perks are not to be just like, oh, Hit a little, little sticker? No. These perks are fucking phenomenal. Um, I got three months of YouTube Premium. There's three months of Spotify... Four months of Spotify Premium. Three months of Disco or Nitro. Then there's in-game perks specific to a game. Oh, get 10 packs from MLB The Show. Get 12 this, that. It's really good perks. So, definitely worth always... If you have Game Pass, go check out your perks right now. Some of them last a long time that you can redeem them. Or they just renew themselves anyway. So, utilize it. Um, but yeah, the uh, those are some cool perks that you get through that. And then, of course, uh, with uh, Game Pass Ultimate, you also get EA Play, which their base starting subscription is $5 to get a slew of EA games to stream. So you not only have... you, So you're paying $15 for the Ultimate and you're getting that EA pl- Play base cost, no additional cost. You don't have to pay for that. It doesn't jack up the price of your subscription. You just get that as an added feature. You get all those games and even better, if you're on an Xbox console and not on PC... They're all just in the Xbox Game Pass tab, which is so much more fluid. You don't have to open up an EA hub bullshit like that. And it's a lot of games. We're talking about Battlefield, Titanfall, MLB, Madden. We're talking about all of them. And we're talking about 10-hour trials of the new games that come out. All the stuff you would get as an EA Play $5 subscription, you get with Game Pass Ultimate with no additional cost. And then, on top of all that, you get all the games that are available on Xbox Game Pass for PC. So if you have PC... If you have PC, you best be getting Ultimate. If you plan on paying on playing Game Pass games or playing online with your Xbox friends, just get Ultimate. Because it allows all those features and allows PC. You could play, you could just buy Game Pass PC, but it, if you just want to play the games offline with no other people, just with the internet connection, that's fine, I guess. Um, anyway. And these games are not just like, oh, what are these games? As you may already know, these games are plentiful. They are diverse. There are almost three to four new games. Oh, it also allows xCloud, which is new, if if you have the ultimate, which means you can stream, I mean literally stream games to your phone and play them from Xbox servers, which is pretty cool. 
and a bunch of other little features and gizmos and such. But um, these games are all first-party Xbox games are on there, as well as a shit ton of other games. Licensed directly or, you know, licensed throughout. Small indie games that you may have never seen or given a chance at that are usually 10, 15, 20 bucks. You get to download and play for free for no additional cost. This is all for $15 a month, mind you. So you're still paying, but you're paying for more content like a streaming service. It is that. Um, uh, so so with, with that in mind, like, you get all your Halos, all your Gears of War. Now that Xbox has bought Bethesda, all the Bethesda stuff, Fallout, Skyrim, all of that. You can download and play. You don't have to buy it you know, and all that. And it's always, when you download and play these games, they're the most renovated, updated edition. They're often with the DLC as well and or they're at a discount price or a handful of DLC or certain editions. And then, here's the kicker, if it's a game that isn't like a first-party Xbox, but like I don't plan on getting rid of my Game Pass anytime soon. It's how I play online with my friends anyway. Right, so it's tied into that service. I could separate it if I needed to, but I don't want to or don't need to, so I won't. Um, you know, it's a great service for that. I'm not worried about any first party, anything Microsoft owns to go away. Um, but every once in a while, if there's a game that I am worried, so it's not going to be a Gears or Halo or Hell even Skyrim, right? But if it is an independent game that is not owned by Microsoft, so it's not going to stay in Game Pass permanently. Right. Doom Eternal is not leaving Game Pass. It never will. Um, unless Game Pass changes or something. You know what I mean? It's just they own it. It's like uh, it's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is not going to leave Disney+. Plus. It's exclusively going to just always be there. Whereas if it was on Netflix, it might leave. But... House of Cards is never going to leave Netflix. You know what I mean? So it's an original, exclusive, fully owned by them. There's no licensing agreements that could pull it away. But with independent games or games that are developed or published by other people like EA, that EA Play could go away at some point. Uh, I don't think it will, but it could. Or games that are just individually published, you know. Rainbow Six Siege is on Game Pass for PC and Xbox, which is incredible. And it's not just the base version, it's the deluxe edition that allows the first two years of the operators. Which nowadays isn't a lot because we're in year seven, but that's quite a bit of content. And it's free to download. It's incredible. I've spent so much money on Rainbow Six Siege. Um, it's so cool. If Ubisoft pulls that, then, you know, have access to it more. But they notify you a month or two or more in advance. And here's the kicker. Xbox allows 20% off of the game to buy it if you have Game Pass and 10% off of DLC and the microtransactions within the game. So if you want to buy it, you, you get it at a discount because you have it on Game Pass. So it's also, that's a little more encouraging and they let you know it's about to leave. It's no surprise. Unless you're not paying attention, but that's not their fault. So it's a really, really thought out and well-designed system. And it's useful. It allows us gamers to experiment and play. It saves so much, so much money. In fact, the only downside is it makes it really hard to convince me to buy a full game outright. 
And sometimes the only downside is you don't know exactly when that game is coming to Game Pass. They seem to pull any kind of game. NBA 2K22 is on there. I would have never seen that coming. That came way out of left field. It just got on there two days ago. Maybe they announced it somewhere. I had no fucking clue that was coming. Um, And you just download it and you play it. You don't have to buy it at $60. If you're on PlayStation right now and you only have PlayStation, you don't have Xbox, you don't have Game Pass or PC and Game Pass, though not every Xbox Game Pass game is available on PC Game Pass. That's a little annoying, but it's okay. Um, If you're on PlayStation, you have to buy 2K22 fully, $60 every year, every new 2K. Right now, I don't. I can download it right now. That's the benefit. And it's all kinds of games, independent and not. And for Xbox first-party games, so when the next Elder Scrolls comes out, when Halo came out, and by summer of 2023, when the next COD comes out, I download it. Day one download. That's a huge benefit. That PlayStation's rivaling system that comes out later this summer will not have, which I think is a huge loss. They need to have day one for their first parties. If I'm paying PlayStation for the PlayStation equivalent of Game Pass, I forget what it's called, and it's got three different tiers, 10, 15, and 20. I don't know what the... I don't remember all the differences. Um... Also, Xbox Game Pass has Xbox Smart Delivery, especially for Xbox first-party games. So, if you have the game, if you own it, just in general if you buy it, but also if you have it on Game Pass, it will, and you buy the new Xbox or buy something more powerful, it will automatically give you that next cross-gen, which is different from cross-play. Cross-gen is where you get a better edition of a new game, of the same game, but a better edition for new hardware. And that happens when the new consoles come out. So... That way you don't have to rebuy the same damn game. If you bought Elden Ring on PlayStation, on Xbox One, I don't know if, it depends on the game and the company, but they should, you should be allowed to upgrade it for free, for no additional cost, to Xbox Series X if you buy the new Xbox. That would be unfair if they didn't allow that. So a lot of games do through Xbox's smart delivery system, which is slept on. Anyway, but that day one thing's a big deal. If I had, if I bought a PlayStation Five and I bought that streaming service, I would want that next God of War. I'd want to download that day one. I would expect that, being a Game Pass person. They, that's not a feature yet. It'll probably be added down the road, but it's just not there. Well, the system, the service isn't there yet. But once it is there, it won't be there. So there's a lot of benefits to Game Pass. And the only reason why I'm talking about it so much is it's the only one doing it. I'm not talking about free-to-play games. I'm talking about fully-priced games. Fully-priced games that are fully-priced on other consoles that you could, that you would have to buy there are free to download and play full games at your leisure. And they last a while, people. I mean, No Man's Sky has been on Xbox Game Pass since 2020. It's been now for two years on Game Pass. I don't think it's going anywhere. Remnant from the Ashes is a game I bought thinking it may go away and it was one of my favorite games of 2019 and it was worth owning and I'm proud I bought it. It still hasn't left Game Pass. It's been on there for four and a half years, I think, or three and a half years. So a lot of these games just ain't going anywhere. 
And now that Microsoft has secured the Activision Blizzard deal, you realize how big this library is about to be for Xbox and PC folk who pay for the Game Pass? They're probably going to bump up the price, but even if they bump it to $20, that ain't too bad. That ain't too bad. I think if it goes above that, you're going to be hard-pressed. But um, that's every Call of Duty. That's do uh, not Doom. Diablo. That's Overwatch. That's all the franchises under Activision Blue. I don't even, I genuinely can't even name them all. Guitar Hero, I guess. I mean, just all of them. I'm actually surprised Activision Blizzard being as big as they are don't have their own streaming service, their own subs- Ubisoft Play or EA Play, Ubisoft Plus. You know, the the company didn't make their own. Also, there's a chance that Ubisoft Plus, they're based here, will be integrated into Game Pass. That doesn't mean that Microsoft buys Ubisoft. I don't think that's going to happen but that they just partner to have their service integrated into Game Pass like EA Play. That, if they did that with the Activision deal, by by summer 2023, that would mean Game Pass owners have full access to all the franchises, sequels, DLC, and games for free to download or day one installation to <sighs> Halo, Gears of War, Skyrim, Fallout, all things Bethesda, and you know all the companies under them so evil within doom wolfenstein all of that call of duty overwatch diablo i mean it's so much it's it's overwhelming it's great for the consumer right now hopefully it stays good for the consumer and it doesn't get too shitty it could look at what netflix is going through but it took netflix a damn near decade to get to this point so hopefully we got a decade with game pass anyway streaming is the new way to go and the thing about it is when you have crossplay, when you have streaming you have the perfect trinity of people playing your games and at the end of the day game devs need people to play their games especially if they're online so if you have a game that is not free to play but is on game pass console and pc and is crossplay you have just locked in a huge market that would potentially try your game because the barrier of entry for gaming as i stated in the beginning of this podcast is high if you want to become a gamer you have to buy the consoles you have to buy the equipment the controller the, 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 the. you have to have decent internet you just kind of do and then the sus- subscription service to the online features if you're a console and then Buying a game is three times more expensive at a full-price retail. Buying one game is three times more expensive than buying a movie, a Blu-ray movie. It's 20 to $22 for a full 4K UHD combo pack Blu-ray movie. It's $60 for a video game, usually $70, $80, with the bonus, deluxe, and other additions, and it can easily break $100, which is fucking ridiculous. Um... And they're time-consuming, but, you know. But if the barrier of entry is, oh, this is a free download, then it's really up to storage. And, oh, hey, don't forget, storage is expensive, too. Um, To buy extra hard drives, that's the new issue for Game Pass owners. Do I have enough storage? Because they don't always want to delete the games, or they like a handful of games, you know. Um, 
if you're on PC and you have to do other stuff and work and, and you can't just load your PC full of just games, yeah, you're going to have some issues. But that's a small, long-term, ex- small expenditure or pricey, but it's a long-term investment to have decent storage for digital downloads. My point is, Game Pass is really the king of it because they're the only ones doing it the way that it should be done. They'll be more entering and following soon enough. Look at everyone following Netflix, um, right? So it's not going to be unusual, but it is something that is quite big. And, um, and it is the future of gaming. If you can make a game, that's good. That has decent hype. That in the first two weeks comes out with minimal bugs and good polish. Right? That has the core gameplay loop of presenting a challenge, presenting an objective, keeping an even playing field, showing an obstacle, and allowing the player to overcome the obstacle. And if you allow good community engagement, hype, and publicity post-launch for new content coming down the line if it's a game that falls under that category and allow multiplayer interaction however is fitting within the game especially cross-play interaction if there is a multiplayer heavy game and if you make it accessible in the sense of either cheaper or give a lot of deals on it if it's not or putting it on a subscription service platform then you have hit the holy grail of a game that will be played. That's the future of the industry, ladies and gentlemen. If they follow these steps, those are the games that will continue to be played. Doesn't matter what type of game, doesn't matter if it's live service or not. And if it is live service, it'll benefit it. If it isn't, it'll still be beneficial. Right? Look at Rocket League. Look at Warzone. Look at Rainbow Six. Look at uh, Elden Ring. All of those games fall under one or more of those key components to the future of the video game industry. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.